electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. And in the tug of war over interest rates, the jobs report tomorrow morning could dictate the next big move. But our guest says the rise in bond yields is overdone and stocks and yields are both heading lower from here. We're in a zone where bad things happen, says economist Michael Darda. He's here to tell us what he means by that and how much pain he sees ahead. Plus, home builders have been in the sweet spot amid record low inventory and their ability to buy down rates. But as the housing market loses steam again, is it time to bail? And why former FDIC chair Sheila Baer says stop panicking. Higher rates are actually a good thing. She joins us live to explain that ahead. Let's start with the market. So Bob Bassani's down at the New York Stock Exchange. Bob, and what do you make of the action today? Higher rates are a good thing. Maybe in the long run, long run not in the short run. The last two weeks since rates have moved up, forget about it. The stock market's been in a complete tizzy. We are dramatically oversold. So I'll be interested to hear what Sheila has to say about this. Dow Industrials, a problem today. The consumer names, Coca-Cola's been a little bit on the weak side. Uh, some of the other names, Procter & Gamble, been weak. Uh, Conagra had a report that was eh, so-so, not bad. They, they affirmed essentially their guidance, but they indicated that the lower-end consumer was having some problems out there. The S&P 500, well, let's put it this way. We need a little more energy here. They were briefly positive for a nanosecond right after the open, but they sold right into it. Still no buying interest. Nasdaq's actually held up the best of the three of them in the last couple weeks. 13,100, 13,200. It's been there uh, the last two weeks. I'd say, again, they held up pretty well. Just let me show you the, uh, the idea of being oversold. What does that mean? Since September 15th, that's when rates started moving up. We've seen some notably oversold conditions here, uh, and that's really the problem. We've got a yield obsession. That's what I'm calling it. Stocks are oversold. There's no bounce. It's a buyer strike. It's not like everybody's selling like crazy. The buyers just don't want to buy anything. So the issue is when a bond yield is going to start to stabilize. In the meantime, just look what's been happening in the last two weeks. Again, since rates started moving up September 15th, right across the board, U.S. Bancorp, Amex, uh, Home Depot, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, doesn't matter. Verizon's down almost 7%. Procter & Gamble's down 6%. U.S. Bancorp's not in the Dow. But you get the point here. Right across the board, everything is sort of down 5, 6, 7, 8%. And in the meantime, we're dealing with these head-spinning moves in oil and gasoline in the last, literally this week here. These are the biggest oil funds, some of the biggest ones that are out there. They're tied to oil or to oil stocks. In the last five, four days, they're down six, seven, eight percent. It used to be oil was high priced. We were worried about inflation. Now it's almost deflationary what we're seeing in gasoline. It's kind of insane going on the last week. It's big, big volume uh, around this. Meantime, take a look at the largest ETFs. These are the ones that are used every day for trading purposes, largely. Curiously, you can't see this here, but the volume is very, very low here. We're not seeing, you think the people be selling like crazy in ETFs and moving stuff around. No, it's really kind of quiet out there right now. This is what I mean with a buyer's strike going on for the market. So the S&P 500, guys, uh, the key story here is watch the 4,200 level. There's the 200-day moving average that we've got. Back to you guys. And, Bob, so let me just, 4,200, a lot of people are watching, and the 200-day is right around that level as well? Yeah. 
42, I think it's 4205 is the 200 day moving average right now. And, and do you put a lot of stock in these kind of, so we'll talk more about this a little bit later on, these death crosses and things like that. What do you think are the most important trading activities to follow? You put up the 10 year yield. I mean, literally it's, it's every once in a while, the market gets obsessed with a metric. At one point it was oil, literally the market moved with oil, not recently, but today and in the last two weeks, you can just watch what's going on with 10-year yields. And essentially, now, today I was hoping for, with flattish yields, I was hoping for a little bit more of a bounce. Right. And we're not really seeing that, you'd think. And I think this is a problem with the psychic damage that's been done. People aren't sure whether this is this is done or not. This is why we got to, what's going to change this? Well, we got to watch tomorrow with what's going on with the jobs report. 170,000. We want not... 170. We want 150,000. And why? Why am I saying that? If you get 250, forget it. The market's going to go down again. Strong jobs, not good. If you get 100,000, everyone's going to say, "Oh, then they're going to be obsessed with whether or not the economy's going into a tailspin." So the Goldilocks is like 150 at this point for the jobs report. And that's how hard it is. How do you thread this needle so perfectly that you want everything just to slow down just enough? There's that soft landing, and it's it's proven very, very difficult. These higher rates really are affecting large areas of, of the stock market. Yeah, and, and the economy, especially uh, soon to be, I think. Bob, thank you very much. Okay. We always appreciate it. Our Bob Pisani. And the perfect segue to our next discussion, because jobless claims this morning are just the latest data point, suggesting the economy is still hanging in there. The claims were at a historically low 207,000, follows a jump in job openings, slightly better ISM ratings last month, and it's helping to underpin that recent rise in bond yields. But my next guest says yields have way overshot to the upside, and he says none of the three arguments for higher rates from here holds up to scrutiny. We are entering the danger zone where bad things happen to the business cycle due to policy lags. Joining me now is Michael Darda, the chief economist and macro strategist at Roth MKM. Mike, it's great to have you back. Welcome. Thanks for having me on, Kelly. I didn't think this was a debate, but let me start with the fact that you still think there are lags because there are some in the camp that say the lags are gone. Everything's priced in immediately because of forward guidance and so forth. And I don't know. I, I don't, I've never quite bought it, but I don't think you're a buyer of that narrative. No, it doesn't make much sense to me. And the same people are telling us that the economy's less rate sensitive now because everybody locked in low mortgage rates a few years ago. Well, if anything, that means the lags are still there, but they're potentially longer. So it's just not a coherent argument. Um, we look back at history, and what history says is the lags are there, they're long, and they're variable. If you're looking at something like the yield curve or money supply figures, and, you know, these indicators started inflecting, you know, just over a year ago now. And so we're moving into a zone here um, where, you know, where things start to break. Now, look, I admit, um, economies held up better than I expected this year, especially after the regional banking crisis started um, in March of this year. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that um, I think we're I think we're headed into into more difficult waters here as we move into Q4. Q3 looks fine, but you know <laughs> it's behind us now. I like what you said about how the mortgages might actually mean the lags hit with an even bigger lag um, than normal. Let me ask you: We had Dave Zervos on yesterday, who was getting into kind of the the former QE and the size of the Fed's balance sheet, and saying maybe that just continues to act as stimulus in the economy. It continues to act as a shock absorber. It means we have to raise rates even higher in order for them to have an effect. 
Yeah, that's certainly possible. Um, you know, if the neutral rate is higher, then the Fed has to go higher to get the, the, the desired effect. But that's effectively what they've done, right? I mean, this this policy tightening cycle has been much more dramatic than, than the last one. And what the Fed is telling us is they want below trend growth, they want rates at restrictive levels, and then they want to hold there. So if this you know, Q3 data that everybody's all excited about with the Atlanta Fed numbers. If that looks like it's sustainable, the Fed is just going to be back at it with the rate hikes again. Uh, so eventually they're going to get the slower growth that they want from restrictive policy. And that's, I think, when the, you know, the long end of the, the curve starts to, to turn here. I thought it would be sooner than this. You know, I didn't expect to see the 10-year up at you know, almost 5% this week. Right. But, you know, those claims figures today were good, at least on, you know, the initial claims in the, you know, the bond yield failed to continue rising. So maybe we're just getting to the point now where, you know, this most recent surge is over. But in a recession scenario, you want to buy the long end of the curve. The utility stocks are down almost 20% in, in, uh, in the last six months. So I think it makes sense to be more of a contrarian here than just, you know, than to, to be joining the soft landing happy dance at just the wrong time. So you say that yields have overshot to the upside. I'm curious by how much do you think? Um, and, and I, I, you know, obviously for those who think, well, no, I, they, you know, the economy is going to be fine, then, then maybe it takes longer for any of those arguments to take hold. But again, I mentioned there were kind of three reasons why people think we're going to have structurally higher rates, and, and you're not really buying any of them. And the deficit's one of them. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, probably the trickiest one because it is quite unusual to see a fiscal deficit at you know, 8% of GDP at full employment. Frankly, it's absurd. Uh, but keep in mind that the 10-year yield was at 330 six months ago. And so, you know, what's happened really is a surge in what markets are expecting in terms of short-term interest rates staying at elevated levels. The 36-month Fed funds futures yield has jumped 150 basis points uh, over the course of you know the last six months or so, and that you know perfectly tracks the move up in the 10-year yield. And you have people talking about a potential return to the 1970s, but obviously failing to actually look at the component part parts of the 10-year Treasury. This is a real rate dynamic right. that's unfolded here, and at the same time, you've got copper and other sensitive industrial metals rolling over hard. Still inverted yield curves, still very weak money supply figures. I mean, you know, if if that's the 1970s, then Klaus here and I can switch places. <laughs> also, is it true that inflation breakevens this week in particular have moved lower? This was something that Brian Reynolds were highlighting. He was focused on the one-year inflation breakeven, but he says it's plummeted this week. Meanwhile, after the Fed meeting, we've also started to see uh, high yield or junk spreads widen out, and some of those indicators of the business cycle really finally starting to turn. Um, you know, I, I, I guess at this point, the problem is we've just been hearing about the recession for so long that people think, well, I'm, I'm just tired of hearing about it, so it must not happen. And I, and I guess maybe the question to ask you as it boils down to investors is for those who say, you know, they would chase or, or expect a year-end stock rally, I don't think, are, would you be expecting that? No, not real, really. Um, you know, the, the S&P forward multiple ran up to, to, to a 20 handle uh, this summer, which didn't make sense with the rate structure that was in place then. And it definitely doesn't make sense now with, you know, with rates higher. If rates start coming down, that could help valuations, but not with an economy losing steam and potentially going into recession. 
And so I think you want to stick with the less cyclical sectors here, things like health care, utilities. You know, you, you know, you have to have some grit to, to be <laughs> buying something serious now. Um, but, you know, but that's where we would be focused. Seven to 25 months. I mean, that's the historical range of when recessions hit after a persistent curve inversion begins. And so that would, you know, the longest lag then on, on that range would take us into the end of, of next summer. I, you know, I doubt we're going to get that far, um, but, you know, we're, we're in the danger zone here, so we should just be mindful. The last thing, and I always think of you as kind of having the best real-time tracking of, of nominal GDP, and the reason it matters is to try to figure out if inflation can pick up again. You know, when people say, well, look at all the wage gains that are being negotiated and look at all the upward pressure on inflation. Well, there's a different but difference between upward pressure on on costs or upward uh, or downward pressure on corporate margins and the ability of the entire economy to pass along and withstand considerably higher inflation. What do you think NGDP is telling us right now in terms of what's possible? Well, you know, stepping aside from Q3, which looks pretty strong, I mean, I think we're, we're headed into lower figures. Uh, the New York Fed actually has a week, weekly tracking index for, for real GDP that's high frequency. It comes out every, you know, every week. And you can use the tips market to to create a weekly proxy for year-to-year nominal GDP growth, and it's sub, you know, it's it's sub four percent with a five and a half, you know, five and a quarter to five and a half percent policy rate, and I think those figures are going to be going lower uh, on the back of a restrictive Fed stance here, and you know, and so if you don't, you know, if you don't have the money supply, if the Fed is above neutral on policy rates, you're not going to get the nominal GDP growth, and that will suffocate inflation. And so in that sense, I think you want to be more optimistic on the long end of the curve here. I shouldn't ask you a potentially long, a question, the long answer when I have no time left, but I'm going to do it anyway. Why don't you think the deficit could push bond yields higher or keep them at these levels? Because especially what you're describing, if if G is lower than R, if nominal growth is going to be lower than than interest rates, and, and maybe it's not if the rate corrects, but we're trying to figure out how bad the fiscal picture is going to get. Yeah, well, I think in a recession scenario, what ends up happening is private sector credit demand evaporates. And so that's why the deficits historically don't have any correlation to, to bond yields. You know, some viewers might be startled by that, but that's, you know, that's actually correct. Now, we are in an unusual setting here, and I don't want to write off the fiscal situation because it you know, definitely is problematic. But cyclical swings in the economy and the expected path of Fed policy really dominate the, the yield curve. And so in a recession scenario, you want to be owning the long end. If we're talking about like a 10 or 15 year projection or even five, I mean, that, that's probably a different discussion. All right. For now, Mike, thank you. And and the dog, as always. We appreciate your time today. Michael Darda joining me from MKM Partners. My next guest says there aren't a lot of safe havens and equities right now, but he does have three names that look attractive at current levels. And one of them, interestingly, is a derivative play on commercial real estate, a sector that's been under a lot of pressure amid rising rates. John Porter joins me now. He's chief investment officer and head of equity at Newton Investment Management. John, it's good to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. What, what's the? How do you screen stocks in this kind of market? What are you looking for? Uh, right now, I put on my my helmet and hide under my desk. Uh, <laughs> this 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 rate environment is 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 a really tough place for equities. Um, there's there really is no place to hide when you look at the defensive part of the market, part of the market where you know the the dividend yield is very important. You know, there's there's a lot of competition from the bond market for 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 yield right now. So you're not going to defensive stocks. 
the growth area of the market, high PEs, those are under pressure because of, of the, the, the rising rate environment. Cyclicals could be interesting if the rising rate environment was reflecting a, a stronger economy, but I think there's other factors driving the uh, driving the, the, the bond market right now. So cyclicals are a tough place to, to be. So I think you're left with sort of looking at idiosyncratic individual stock opportunities. It's hard to generalize about um, attractive parts of the broader equity market right now. Yeah, very well said. I was thinking about that with Lamb Weston, you know, the potato and French fry, the frozen products maker. It's having a nice day today. Go figure. So you're looking at stocks. Uh, give me a couple of names idiosyncratically that, that pop up to you. Why? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sarepta is, is one of them. First, healthcare is a, an area of the market that I think generally looks attractive because of the, the defensiveness of the, of the business models, attractive valuation, still some growth optionality that I'm excited about. Biotech in particular has really sold off here because of the rise in rates. Understandably, it's a, it's a part of the market that depends on capital markets. But Sarepta is an idiosyncratic name. They've got a, a treatment for a really horrible disease that disease yeah. afflicts young boys that was approved this summer tentatively. There's some key data coming out in another month. So it's, it's not for the faint of heart. There's a, there's a binary situation in the next month that will cause a significant move in the stock. Uh, but my research team has a lot of confidence in, in the future for uh, the treatment for this disease, muscular dystrophy. You also have Alphabet. Uh, maybe that's a little bit less controversial of a, of a place to hide. We'll get to that in a moment. But what about CoStar Group? Yeah, CoStar Group is just a, a phenomenal business. It's, a, it's an under-the-radar business that was, that was founded 35 years ago. I think it's one of the best in idiosyncratic stories I see in the market. It's, it's really all about data analytics and marketplaces for commercial real estate uh, focused in the United States. They uh, you know, have huge market share in, in that market, recurring revenue business model, um, high renewal rate of, the, of their clients. I think it's a very sticky business. Um, concerns about the broader commercial real estate market are very valid, but I don't think it'll impact the demand for the products and services they offer their clients. It's really a must-have if you operate in commercial real estate. And there's future growth potential. They're investing in the residential side of real estate with some really exciting potential here in the United States. And there's still a, a largely untapped international market for them as well. All right. Before you go, then, why Google? Why does that one jump up when you could have any of the mega caps to pick from? Yeah, I think I think right now, look, artificial intelligence is real. This is going to be transformational. I was at a conference last week where a, a top exec at one of the cloud providers said that that artificial intelligence is akin to the Internet in terms of its significant impact on mm -hmm. on the, the, the future growth of our economy. But Google is a company that right now the perception around the stock is that they're not particularly well positioned in AI. And there are some threats that you've got to monitor, particularly to their core search business. But this is a highly innovative company. It's a company that, that we think has been, um, more so than the market appreciates, has been inv investing aggressively behind their AI efforts for a long period of time. And frankly, valuation matters. You're trading, it's trading at 20 times next 12 months earnings for a company that we think can grow the top line sort of you know, maybe low teens for the next three or four years. That's a really attractive risk reward, I think, right here. All right. Well, we'll let you, you know, no helmet. Uh, maybe, it, you know, maybe things are calming down here. Maybe not. Either way, uh, some strategies to John. Thanks so much for joining us to explain it. We appreciate it today. John Porter from Newton Investment Management. 
Coming up, we've got a preview of tomorrow's jobs report and the latest read on which sectors of the labor market are still seeing the strongest demand. Recruiter.com chairman Evan Sohn joins us next. Plus, former FDIC chair Sheila Baer will join us to talk banks, rates, and what worries her most and least about today's environment. And as we go to break, here's a quick check on the markets. Uh, you can see there are pretty even declines across the major averages, about a half percent for everything from the blue chips to the Russells. The 10-year yield uh, has settled back, and as Bob Bassani said, at 471, it's a little surprising we're not seeing a better reaction in the stock market. S&P about 40 points, 35 or 40 points above its 200-day. The exchange is back after this. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to the exchange. Job openings surprisingly surged in the latest report, leading to hope that the labor market might remain at near historically tight levels. ADP, on the other hand, disappointed this week, saying private payrolls rose just 89,000 last month, that that's the weakest since January of 2021. So what's the real state of the labor market ahead of tomorrow's big jobs report? Let's ask Evan Sohn. He is chairman of Recruiter.com. Evan, welcome. This is a Many more cross currents than normal here. I, I, genuinely, what do you think the uh, the trend is? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me back. Um, sentiment is slightly up in the recruiter index. Last hmm. month we hit an all time low, and it went up to two point nine percent. But when you double click into it, it's really at the ninety day outlook where recruiters are seeing a little bit better world for themselves. Um, it's a very tight labor market. Uh, 70 something percent, about 70, about 70 percent of the recruiters reported that their candidates they were interviewing were actually employed. So it's still this quit rate that we're looking at. And the Joel report really aligns with the Joel report where we actually saw not just that the, jo the job opening numbers increased, but the actual quit, quit rate of August increased from July slightly. Uh, it's about 3.5 percent increase uh, higher than where it was in the pre-pandemic levels. And by the way, if we're looking year over year at the quit rates, it's still about 15% higher, 50% uh, lower quit rate uh, last month of August uh, than it was in August of 22. So it's a very, very tight labor market. We've also been doing some studies where we're seeing that the working population getting older. Again, another testament to the fact that this is a very, very tight labor market. Yeah. So that's that's yeah. <laughs> That that doesn't really clear anything up for me because I say, OK, well, OK, no, but, but meaning your clarification now leads me to bigger questions about the economy. So if the job market is still tight, but then I'm thinking about our segment top of the hour about how, you know, looking around the corner, things might not look so so good. I'm like, maybe that's why we're seeing so many labor strikes at the moment. What industries do you see that have this, the biggest strength right now? So uh, healthcare, healthcare continues to be the number one spot. 
Um, and again, if you see the high, uh, the in-person roles that our recruiters are working on are about 43%, and in-person and, and healthcare are generally going to line up very, very closely with each other. Um, remote is actually now only 20%, full-on remote jobs. Uh, but medical, IT, sales, hospitality, retail, those are the top in demand. But you see they all tick down a little bit. The other thing that's really interesting is that the majority of the recruiters in the, in the index saw salaries remain the same. Uh, month over month, the same salary. And where we saw a little bit of an increase was actually on the higher end side, the 200,000 plus job, and on the lower end side, the 40 to $45,000 plus jobs. So we're, it's a really interesting market, but again, very, very tight. The quit rate is still there, replacing jobs. Uh, we, only saw a, we only saw a very small percentage of the recruiters actually working 100% on new jobs. So if you think of backfill, jobs where people quit, they have to fill those jobs again, are still the primary jobs that people are working on. Yeah. And you see here now, compensation is still the number one reason why people want to leave. Um, so they want to leave for better compensation, but maybe the compensation isn't in there, which is why our candidate sentiment actually ticked down one notch month over month from 3.5 to 3.4. And that jives with what we've heard that, you know, the wage hikes are the, the, the anecdotally and some of the ISMs and other things, wage hikes are coming down a little bit. Um, and it's interesting what you say about healthcare. I mean, we're experiencing the biggest healthcare strike we've, we've ever had. And the tightness of what you're describing kind of suggests why they have so much bargaining power right now. What's on the flip side? Travel tourism that looks a little bit weaker? Uh, I, I think that's what we actually saw. And every retail ticked down a little bit. Hmm. Um, architecture engineering ticked, ticked down. Uh, recruiting is actually flat month over month. Um, uh, and travel and tourism still at about 1% there. So something's going to have to make up for that overall difference. Yeah, absolutely. Evan, a pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Arming us with more data ahead of that big release. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Evan Sohn with Recruiter.com. As I mentioned, the largest healthcare strike in history just entered its second day this morning after more than 75,000 Kaiser Permanente workers walked off the job yesterday in protests of better wages and staffing conditions. The work stoppage is set to end early tomorrow, but now the union says they're planning a longer strike in November if a new employment contract is not negotiated by then. We've been in touch with reps from both Kaiser and the coalition. While they haven't reached a deal, they have come to a consensus on several key issues, including wage hikes in all markets over the next four years, minimum wages of $25 an hour in California and 23 elsewhere in the next three years, and we'll bring you any new developments as we get them and as they happen. Coming up, it's no secret the FTC has set its sights on big tech deal making. Now we're getting some new comments from the agency's chair, Lena Khan, about enforcing those antitrust policies. We'll bring you those remarks later in the show. As we head to break, here's a Dow heat map with two thirds of the blue chips in the red. Coca-Cola, Dow Inc. and Honeywell, the worst performers. J&J, &J, Visa and Merck, two out of three healthcare names outperforming. The exchange is back after this. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. We're seeing markets down about half a point right now for the Nasdaq. It's slightly underperforming, whereas the blue chips are down three-tenths of a percent. At the lows, we were down 188. We're about 70 points off that right now. Also, take a look at some of the so-called death crosses forming in the market. That's when the 50-day moving average breaks below the 200-day. The retail ETF you can see there, the XRT, trading at its lowest level since June and its 50-day, you can see those lines converging at the very end there, just broke below the 200-day. Small caps could be next, nearing their lowest level since May for the Russell 2000s and approaching, as you can see, the so-called death cross there as well. Small caps are negative on the year while the S&P still up 12%. And which company here elsewhere? GM is just off its session lows, uh, falling sharply after the Wall Street Journal reported at least 20 million GM vehicles have potentially explosive airbag parts, as if the company needed that right now. Shares are down three and a third percent and briefly dipped below $30 a share. We're a penny above that level right now. Haven't been there in over three years. Remember the IPO price, I believe, was $33 all the way back in 2010. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Ty? Kelly, thank you very much. At least 60 people were killed in a drone attack on a Syrian military academy. A war monitor and security source told Reuters that the drones bombed the academy minutes after Syria's defense minister left a graduation ceremony there. Both civilians and military personnel were reportedly killed in the attack. The defense ministry released a statement blaming, quote, terrorist groups. No group has claimed responsibility. The Northwestern football coach fired in July over hazing allegations is suing the university for $130 million in damages. Pat Fitzgerald says Northwestern wrongfully terminated him after a law firm's investigation found hazing in the football program but did not find sufficient evidence that Fitzgerald knew about it. But the university fired him after the school newspaper published a story in which a student claimed Fitzgerald actually was aware of the hazing. And President Biden's dog, Commander, will no longer be at the White House following a series of biting incidents, some of which required medical care. A spokesman for the First Lady said the Bidens are still deciding what will happen next for their two-year-old German Shepherd, which apparently has a habit of chomping on people. Yeah, Kelly, back to you. Making me think twice about wanting a German Shepherd. Mm -hmm. They can't control it. Anyway, Tyler, thanks. Former FDIC chair Sheila Baer is armed with a hot take, arguing that higher rates are actually better for growth. She'll join us next to make her case and tell us what's keeping her up at night. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. While rising rates are putting pressure on stocks, my next guest sees some advantages. Sheila Baer writing recently that once we get past this painful transition of tightening, we may find higher rates are better for growth by creating more discipline in capital allocation. Here to explain and to weigh in on the fate of both the banks and the CFPB after this week's Supreme Court hearing is Sheila Baer, the former chair of the FDIC. Sheila, welcome back. Good to see you. Thanks for having me, Kelly. I can't, I can't help but read this and go, uh, unfortunately, the, the bad capital allocation over the past decade is so extreme that between the government and some parts of the financial markets, we, ha we have to clean that up and then maybe just hope that that mess uh, doesn't impinge on the, the benefits we could enjoy from better capital allocation in the next decade. Yeah, I, I think that's right. The transition could be very, very painful. Um, there's a lot of, you know, zombies out there that have been propped up. They're, you're already starting to see some of them fail. Uh, inflated asset valuations, those are correcting. A lot of leverage needs to come down. It's going to be painful. I'm hoping we can pull off the, you know, the proverbial soft landing and make this transition not too painful. But once we do get to the other side, it's going to be better for the economy. 
Absolutely. Let, and let's talk a little bit about that. So, um, because I think the implications actually run quite deep. This isn't just, I mean, you, I genuinely wonder about like the size of Wall Street, the size of financial yeah. markets, like all of this <laughs> private equity. There's industries that more than doubled in size built on a business model, um, especially theirs, which relies on low floating rate debt, that now you wonder if it's sustainable. And the answer may depend in part on how long rates stay up here. If we, if we get a recession and we're quickly back down to two, three or zero, I, I guess it won't matter. Well, but, and, but that's actually my nightmare scenario, because then we go through all this pain of tightening and, and trying to get inflation under control. And then just because we've got this huge bloated, bloated you know, financial sector of these private funds that have grown exponentially, we take, you know, we go back to easy money to bail them out and we're right, we're right back in the soup then. So right. I, I think it's going to be hard. I think it's going to be very hard. But it will it will make us, you know, there's no really empirical evidence that low rates boost economic growth. You can't find the correlation. Some of our strongest periods of economic growth have been characterized by high rates. Mm -hmm. There's this kind of mythology that, oh, low rates stimulate the economy. You get a short term bump and it's certainly appropriate if you're in a financial crisis situation. But longer term, it's a drag on growth. So I hope we can see the wisdom of that. Be patient. Think long term. We haven't done that for a while, but think yeah. long term. Hold on, uh, hold on to the reins and get to the other side, and then we'll be better off. Right, and I, I should add, it's not as if you're saying, you know, high rates right now are, are going to be so great. I mean, you're, you sound as cautious about no. the environment as no. anybody oh, yeah, talking absolutely. about credit cards yeah. and kind of what's yes. – and banks, no. we haven't really checked in on the banks in a while. But again, we, we didn't think rates were going to be up here, you know, and it, it, their right. earnings are around the corner. And other than the ones with capital markets, I don't, I don't know what they can point to. yeah. Well, actually, the higher rates for traditional lenders, those that take deposits and make loans, uh, higher rates actually benefit that model so long as, you know, your yield curve is inverted. So some steepening of the yield curve now is actually probably going to be healthy for the banks. Hmm. But, yeah, they've got some transitional issues, too. They've got a lot of low yielding uh, assets on their balance sheet, unrealized market losses, increased pressure on their deposit funding costs, a lot of competition from money market funds and other places, government where you can get a, a really good uh, rate on a, on a, uh, on a virtually risk-free uh, asset for government money market fund. So uh, they've got some challenges too. But again, longer term, I think it's going to be good for traditional lenders. That will be good for small and medium-sized businesses who tend to get their credit from those banks, not from the capital markets. So do you kind of think that, you know, looking at the back half of this decade, the picture looks a little bit brighter or, or overhanging all of this is what's happening mm -hmm. on the kind of the fiscal side of it? Yeah, well, the fiscal side is a real problem. And, and regardless of what the Fed does, if, if we can't get our federal deficit spending under control, that's just going to keep pushing rates up and up, uh, regardless of what the Fed does. So, yeah, and what's going on now in Congress doesn't give you a lot of hope. They can't even put a budget together. Uh, and it looks like we're probably, because of this mess with McCarthy, uh, you know, the, the extremist one. So we're probably, again, looking at a government shutdown in November. It just it, 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 it uh, is beyond my imagination, having worked for Bob Dole in the 80s, when Congress and Congress really function, the government really function to see what's going on now is 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 very sad. And I can only hope we're, we're close to hitting bottom. They're going to figure out the lunacy of their ways, straight, get up, you know, straighten up their act and put us on a fiscal uh, sustainable path. You know, they're on inflation. There are things they could do a more rational immigration policy. We've got a demographic problem, tight labor markets. A part of that is just being driven by the demographics, a sensible inflation, excuse me, immigration policy where people who want to work and contribute can come to this country legally. That would make a lot of sense. But we're, we're so far from even having that kind of discussion. Housing supply, too. What are we talking about there? Not sure. much of anything. Right. So and uh, there's a sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
I would just say there's a lot on the inflation front. We're putting it all on the Fed. There's a lot on the inflation front that a functioning Congress could could address. But that's hardly even part of the political discourse right now. So the last thing I want to ask you about the Supreme Court, on top of everything else going on, the Supreme Court this week did hear oral arguments in which the plaintiffs are arguing the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, is unconstitutional because its funding comes from the Fed and not Congress. You were weighing on Mm -hmm. this uh, for Politico saying, look, it could disrupt everything from Medicare, which you didn't think about, to financial regulators. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you think is at stake here? Yeah, yeah. Like a lot. I mean, scores of independent agencies are, are funded outside of annual appropriations. That's been going on for the FDAC 90 years. Uh, we funded ourselves with deposit insurance premiums. Hmm. The Fed, you know, uh, the profits they make on their, their portfolio and they charge fees, uh, regulatory fees from the regional banks. So there are, you know, <laughs> there are independent sources of funding which Congress created because they recognize these functions is important to have stability and certainty in, in, in their ability to function. So that could all be thrown out, but I, I am, a, or, or could be vulnerable, I should say. I don't want to, you know, right. this, this is only with the CFPB, but if they say you, you've got to be appropriated through the annual preparations process, that opens up a lot of other agencies to, to legal challenges on terms of the legal, legality of their actions with supposedly an unconstitutional funding structure. So I do think it's important, and especially now, as we're seeing what's going on with even, you know, more and more dysfunction in Congress, even getting... Any government agency funded to say, okay, now maybe maybe we should put more on independent funding, not less. (laughs) More needs to be outside annual appropriations. Right. As more people are trying to to pass the basket, maybe a different way. Uh, Here comes a ruling (laughs) that could kind of push everybody back through the. Sheila, always a pleasure. Help uh, just kind of cut through uh, all the nonsense and to uh, talk about what's going on. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Sheila Bear. She also has two new books out today in her Money Tales Picture Book series. I might need to start at this level at this point. Uh, Financial Literacy Lessons for Children. For more information, check out Sheila's website, moneytalesbooks.com. Still ahead, fresh comments from FTC Chair Lena Khan on her efforts to make doing deals harder. What she said, what it means for big tech, which is slightly under pressure today. And as we had to break, take a look at shares of Lamb West. And I mentioned this earlier on, but they're almost 10% to their best day since January after raising full year revenue and earnings outlook. Remember, this is the maker of frozen French fry products that you can buy at restaurants or at the grocery store. A notable bright spot in an otherwise ugly consumer staples sector. We're back in two. Welcome back to of President Biden's top antitrust regulators giving an update today on the administration's efforts to hold big tech accountable. Just a few weeks into the DOJ's landmark case against Google, Eamon Javers has been monitoring from Washington and joins us in today's Tech Check. Eamon? Hey there, Kelly. Well, we did hear directly from the two leading figures in the Biden administration's antitrust push at the Brookings Institution this morning. They laid out their vision for enforcement, including the idea that they're going to push to measure the impact of merger deals on workers, not just on prices for consumers, and that they will continue to push back against what they call anti-poaching and non-compete agreements, which can block workers, they say, from getting better jobs and wages. Assistant Attorney General Jonathan Cantor said he's been surprised about how many of the comments that are filed in his cases are coming in from ordinary workers, ranging from what he said were farmers to nurses. The country's watching. The country cares about competition in a competitive economy because it affects so many aspects of our lives and our democracy. And FTC Chair Lena Khan said the failure to push back against corporate consolidation has led in part to the political anger that she sees across the country today. 
there's also been a deep disillusionment with government and a sense that government isn't out there fighting for them and protecting them from monopoly power and corporate power. And so I also think, you know, the burden for us is getting this right from a competition perspective, but I think also showing people that we have cops on the beat that are fighting to protect people. The two also address some criticism that they're not winning all the cases that they have brought, saying that they're going to learn from their failures and continue to challenge deals that they see as bad for employees. Kelly, back over to you. So you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but I mean, they've faced yeah. some big losses uh, in court. They people talk about career risk now if you're part of this, uh, you know, of, of that piece of the uh, administration. My question is, are they changing gears, changing tax? How do they respond to that or are going to deal with it, do you think? Yeah, you know, they sort of rejected this. In their view, this is a media narrative that they're losing too many cases. They feel that they have put up a big track record of wins as well. Uh, and on the cases that they've lost, they said they're going to go back and uh, look at the facts of the case and figure out how to bring cases uh, better in the future. Uh, but they also had this idea that there's a deterrent effect here. If they are aggressively pushing against some of these deals, that that will stop people from bringing more merger and consolidation deals that otherwise uh, they would have to litigate against. So in their view, consolidation in general, not always bad, but if it hurts workers, right, if it makes it more difficult for employees to find jobs, to find multiple employers, to play employers off of each other, to get a better wage for themselves, that's sort of the world that they're trying to get to uh, with a focus on what it means for the employees of these companies, just as much as what it means for the consumers in terms of the prices of the products that they're paying for. Strange. All right. Eamon, thank you very much. We appreciate yeah. it. Eamon Javers reporting in Washington. Coming up, the builders have had a good run since last year, but now those stocks are down double digits in two months. A good entry point, or should you bail and lock in any gains you still have? We'll talk about that next. Welcome back. Quick check on the market shows the Dow has suddenly erased its losses and is heading back towards the positive territory we briefly enjoyed right around the open when we were up less than 30 points. We're down 23 and it's the outperformer, so we'll tell you if any of them turn green. Home builders, meantime, have been among the few players in the housing market benefiting from rising interest rates and tight supply. But bearish sentiment has been growing as names like Pulte, Toll and KB Home have seen double-digit declines in the past two months. And my next guest sees further correction ahead. For more, let's bring in Maxwell Grinikoff. He's U.S. equity derivative strategist at UBS. It's a complicated uh, seat that you sit in, Max, but it leads to a very simple conclusion right now, which is... Yeah, look, home builders are a dis uh, consumer discretionary industry at the end of the day. Um, you know, we've since seen evidence of the U.S. consumer starting to crack. You know, you see this in the most recent uh, consumer confidence data, household net worth starting to wane, debt levels and delinquency rates increasing, resulting from, you know, a lot of those excess savings having been spent down um, and labor market data under the hood deteriorating uh, when you strip out areas like healthcare and education. Adding to that, you know, higher oil prices, resumption of student loan payments, the confluence of those start to be more of a headwind for the consumer. Um, you know, as a publication, home builders are up, we're up 27% year to date versus S&P up 13. That's in the face of mortgage rates close to 8%. That's 20, almost 25 year highs. Home affordability, the lowest on record, right? Yeah. And so it's interesting to me to, to hear it from your point of view, because we've heard the fundamental case. You know, we've talked to some economists and even some analysts who, who kind of see these problems. Talk to me about what 
when we're talking about sort of the equity derivatives piece of this and you overlay that, what are what are you gleaning? And it sounds like you're gleaning this not just about the builders, maybe other aspects of this market. Yeah, and, and, and it really lines up with our bearish cyclicals call, um, you know, into the into the latter part of this year. Um, you know, as you alluded to, home builders, one of the few uh, at least consumer oriented areas that have actually benefited from a higher rate environment. That's obviously a function of housing supply remaining extremely tight. Um, so if I can't find a home in the secondary market, I'll just go out and build my own. Right. So that's been a cyclical tailwind for the home builders. But we do think the space now appears more geared to a cyclical slowdown in the short term. Um, you know, home builder sentiment has fallen. Housing starts and permits uh, have softened. And fundamentally, from from an equity U.S. equity perspective, we've started to see relative earnings momentum um, start to turn over, and valuations like price to book appear more vulnerable. Yeah. Um, you know, if we do get a more volatile macro. And uh, you have strategies. Yeah. You know, uh, you might want to consider XHB December put spreads. I'm not going to mm. pretend that I, <laughs> you know, this is my area of expertise whatsoever. Um, but what would you say about kind of the market pullbacks? You know, I. I guess it just depends on your time horizon. Is the pressure that you foresee the kind of pressure that goes into year end? Is it something more? Yeah, no, look, as I mentioned, we've taken a more bearish stance on cyclicals. We've taken a, a moderately long vol volatility and long quality bias um, into the fall and into the, the latter part of this year. Um, and we've started to see this play out a bit, especially post-September FOMC. You know, as the U.S. equity market interestingly, interestingly continues to trade this, you know, good is bad, bad is good uh, narrative. You, you know, you saw with the jolts number a, a couple of days ago, you saw the reverse of that, um, you, you know, yesterday. Um, so, you know, the question is what ultimately breaks us out of that? Well, it's, you know, John Pingle, our chief uh, U.S. economist who was on the program earlier saying, you know, you will start to see further deterior deterioration, um, you know, in the labor market data that ultimately, you know, hurts the U.S. consumer and that ultimately feeds through to, you know, corporate profitability. Yeah. And he was great. Bad news is bad news again, you know, for, <laughs> right. for home builders in the housing market. Maxwell, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Maxwell Grinikoff with UBS. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.